0: Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Helms. Eric is a physical culturist, and under that umbrella, he is a bodybuilder and a bodybuilding coach, a co-founder of 3D Muscle Journey, and a co-founder of the research review MASS – Monthly Applications in Strength Sports, while also being a physical culture historian. On top of that, Eric is an accomplished academic and is a research fellow at Auckland University of Technology. Today, we're going to be talking all about the issues covered in one of Eric's most recent scientific publications, Towards a Sustainable Nutrition Paradigm in Physique Sports. Let's talk science. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to uh, speak with me today. You are on the almost the opposite side of the world. You're literally like in the uh, Great Britain of the Southern Hemisphere right now. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I'm in that, that that island that's the upside
0: down UK. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Uh, the only place that has more sheep than the UK, actually. So uh, quite a nice place I here. Yep, it is. It's definitely a sheepish country, that's for sure. So, um, so I suppose not that anybody doesn't know who you are. I don't, that's a double negative. I'm not sure if that's the way to go. But um, for anybody who doesn't know who you are, would you mind giving us um, a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Basically, kind of who you are and uh, what you do please.
1: Absolutely. First, just thanks for, for doing this with me. I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about uh, some of the work I do, but yeah, I'm uh, essentially just a guy who really loves to lift weights um, and has very poor ability to not let that take over his life uh, and uh, hasn't stopped loving lifting weights and letting it take over his life for the past 15 years. Um, so what that has culminated in is it becoming my intellectual, uh, physical career and even if you will spiritual pursuit for me uh, of lifting. Um, so yeah, I, I started lifting back oh, 2004, uh, and uh, since then I've pursued an education, um, gotten into competitive natural bodybuilding, drug-free strength sport, and um, created a, a community around around that with 3D Muscle Journey. We started back in 09. That's myself, Alberto Nunez, Brad Loomis, Jeff Alberts, and more recently. Andrew Valdez, our Chief of Operations. And uh, my personal mission statement that aligns really closely with 3DMJ is uh, basically to support the natural lifting community with sustainable uh, approaches to improving performance. So, really thinking about that career perspective. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I'm an advocate uh, for, for, for being drug free, just because it takes that kind of holistic, big picture perspective. Not that I'm anti being enhanced or anything like that. Um, Yeah, more recently, kind of fast forward to what that's all culminated in is I've uh, completed back in 2017 my doctorate in strength and conditioning um, through uh, Auckland University of Technology, where I'm uh, now a research fellow, and um, that's Auckland is in New Zealand. So uh, my wife and I moved out here in 2012. We've been here a little over seven years, fell in love with New Zealand, and all the sheep, Um, but more so the people and just the community and the atmosphere and uh, the beautiful country itself a uh, great research environment at AUT. Um, so, yeah, I'm a research fellow here now. Um, they facilitate my ability to fulfill that mission statement. I supervise master's and Ph.D. students, do some research on the side. Uh, but primarily what I do is I try to act as a um, science communicator and just information provider to uh, the strength and physique community. And uh, I think that's
0: that's pretty much it. In a nutshell. In a nutshell, Yes. Fantastic. Um, and Eric, I just want to say I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on board because I've been following you for years on social media. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that, you know, the fact that I'm that's in the evidence based dream of practice uh, would have a lot to do with a lot of the information that you put out yourself over the past number of years. So I just want to say thanks for that in advance. Um, um, honored to hear that. You're very welcome. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Um, so the reason this this um, conversation today came about is because uh, so obviously we met uh, briefly at the uh, European Powerlifting Conference in London a few weeks back, um, and I had just read your one of your recent papers, which was uh, towards a sustainable nutrition paradigm in physique sports, which is a narrative review that you published recently, um, and I suppose before we get into the body of this conversation. Um, would you be able to kind of tell some of the listeners what was the problem that you were looking at that kind of led you to, um, to kind of basically endeavor to make that paper?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, if you were to go on PubMed and Google uh, bodybuilding, especially competitive bodybuilding, um, more so 10 years ago, but still very much the case today, you would get probably 90% of the thousands of papers that were related towards psychopathology, abuse of anabolic steroids, poor health outcomes, poor mental health outcomes, and surveys of female competitors with history of eating disorders and body image issues and surveys of men with reverse anorexia, which is now then termed bigorexia, which is now called muscle dysmorphia, uh, and it paints a very kind of bleak picture of all that. Um, Now, since about 2013, I would say there's been a, I don't know if i call it an explosion, but at least a minor firecracker of research into the area of kind of evidence-based approaches for bodybuilding. Uh, There was an era in the 80s and 90s, and maybe into the very early 2000s, which essentially just cataloged what bodybuilders were doing, Um, And then it was very kind of silent for a while. Uh, And then nothing, nothing, nothing still with this background of uh, anabolic steroid and eating disorder research more in the sociology and psychology realm, but very little in the sports science realm. Then there was a reemergence in sports science since about 2013 with an emphasis on uh, drug-free bodybuilding, which kind of coincided with its popularity, uh, resurgence, and uh, an emphasis on evidence-based practice. And I think very much um, mirroring our focus in the quote-unquote kind of evidence-based world was this very kind of quantitative biased uh, treating people like robots approach to like trying to figure out whether 1.6 or 2.4 grams per kg of protein is better uh, or whether it's important to get uh, protein within one hour or two hours, uh, whether or not fasted cardio is a good idea or a bad idea, and all these things that arguably even when you add them all up, are probably going to make a 5 or 10% difference in performance, but not necessarily improve your performance 10 years or 20 years from now, more about kind of acute uh, focusing on. So um, that's good and all. And, of course, I, that's really what I did my master's and my Ph.D. on, specifically looking at altering protein intake to improve lean mass retention, um, auto-regulating resistance training to ma- maximize uh, strength. I'm all about, you know, push in the envelope to get marginal gains. that That's what elite sport is, and that's what we like to nerd out about. However, at the same time, I was seeing that uh, there was this conflation with evidence-based being necessarily healthy. And uh, this kind of pure quantitative kind of robotic focus, a lot of things that were, in my opinion, very evidence-based and very intelligent to do were ignored or dropped by the wayside, like uh, understanding human motivation like having autonomy-supportive coaching. Uh, I would say the average evidence-based person back in 2013-2014, they would conflate being a good coach with having evidence-based practice, which, of course, is not the same thing. Uh, You are a good or a bad coach whether or not you know science well. Um, Or we could say that every coach from 1990 was bad. Uh, So coaching is about the relationship with the athlete Uh, Science is about how up-to-date your methods are, and science will change and evolve over time and go backwards, but mostly overall forwards. That's the way the scientific method works. Um, And so long as you pay attention, uh, you know how to adapt based on what is in front of you, and you can uh, use kind of that end-of-one mentality of every time you work with someone, it's that case study of one, and you're, you're adapting to what's happening in front of you and you develop good relationship and know how to communicate and you understand human motivation and psychology, uh, you're a good coach and that's independent kind of, a, of, of where you start or what you do, which is dictated by science. So coaching psychology, big gap. Uh, we had a ton of authoritarian coaches who were, uh, didn't know how to work with people who were essentially scientists trying to um, just apply science to every single person and assuming that would result in good coaching. Uh, and then we also weren't doing a very good job of caring for the mental performance side of things. Um, for ex- A good example would be the conflation of um, IIFYM with flexible dieting, the whole thinking that uh, eating disorders, uh, unhealthy practices, binge eating, bulimia, all the things that were reported in the literature just go away if you simply stop using meal plans and start, to start tracking macros. Um, and, that that's, that's that's basically completely on evidence based. You know, flexible dieting is based on uh, the distinction between flexible restraint and rigid restraint. Two types of the ways that people have a disposition towards seeing their food and seeing diets. Um, and you can absolutely have an eating disorder while following if, if the your macros. You can absolutely have binge eating disorder, bulimia, uh, and it can absolutely not be conducive towards having a healthy relationship with food. So anyway, um, over the last. I'd say three or four years, I've really felt um, somewhat responsible uh, for, for needing to kind of correct this, this direction of the ship, especially in the physique community, which I, I, I do a lot of work for and in. And as a physique competitor myself and my personal experiences and experiences with my athletes, I felt that I needed to do something to bring together the, the sports science with the psychology and sociology and coaching psychology research and uh, sports psychology, which had really been completely disparate. And there wasn't a lot of voices in our community that were talking about um, eating disorders or sports psychology until recently. So um, between bringing on uh, Amanda Rizzo, who is our uh, team mental health consultant, uh, between collaborating with uh, folks who are RDs and, and therapists in the space of Uh, eating disorders, and uh, really just reading everything in this area myself. um, I had kind of the formulation of an idea about two years ago of writing a big paper that says, this kind of the wake-up call saying, hey, we need to actually think about uh, our approaches to nutrition with a much more sustainable mindset. Uh, Meaning, how how do we not have competitors burning out after a couple seasons? Uh, How do we not have people who are you know, perpetuating an eating disorder at at, at best, if not exacerbating prior issues. Um, This is kind of the motivation for us talking about the recovery diet. Uh, This is the motivation for us uh, really talking about scope of practice more and making sure that you don't just have, you know, a PT who you can refer people to if they have a musculoskeletal issue uh, or an RD if they don't digest things well, but also a mental health consultant who is, um, you know, uh, a clinical professional and also the motivation for me collaborating with uh, Dr. Jake Lenardin, who is a uh, highly published researcher in the areas of meta-analyses around eating disorders and eating disorder pathology and binge eating, uh, and also uh, Katerina Pernjak, who is a clinical psychologist doing her Ph.D. in Sydney, uh, who um, who I've gotten the opportunity to work with as well. So anyway, um, that was the, the back story to, to getting this review across the line, and I, I truly do feel it's probably – to this date, the most important piece of research I've published.
0: And it is an absolutely spectacular piece of research. And just for for anybody who who is listening to this, (laughs) don't be honest, Um, for anybody who who is listening to this, it it is something that I would highly recommend reading. Um, It is a a wonderful kind of standalone piece. And um, if if people are looking for, let's say, um, a kind of a gateway into learning more about uh, the many aspects that you you, you cover in um, in the paper itself, it is a fantastic paper that i I, I would highly recommend, um, and even myself, just when I was reading it, um, <laughs> there were so many moments where I was like, "Oh right, yeah, okay, I got it, or or there were so many moments where um, and i 'm going to say this as somebody who 's involved in like let 's say physical culture, um, not specifically bodybuilding, um, I was able to kind of draw a lot of similarities. Um, with myself and my own behavior, um, which has made me think a lot more um, uh, just about my own kind of relationship with, with what I do uh, as, as regards to, to lifting weights and, and dieting and whatever. Um, so yeah, I would highly recommend people to um, to read that. Just to to kind of start the conversation about what you talk about in the paper. So you do cover a lot of the both... Uh, physiological and psychological issues that people who compete in bodybuilding or other physique sports have to deal with. Um, Could you give us a little bit of an idea of some of those um, psychological issues uh, that people in bodybuilding deal with, please?
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, as as we'll get into it in this conversation, they're to some degree inseparable, at least some of the pathways by which uh, the the behaviors that manifest in physique competitors are partially biologically driven, um, and and I think that that's important. But yeah, so so if we look at the kind of like if we just look at kind of the survey of the the psychology research in in bodybuilders, uh, essentially there, there's there's two there's two places it comes from. There is what I would classify as the predisposition towards having um, certain character traits that that are typically closely associated with a higher risk of developing body image or eating disorders. Um, so for example, bodybuilders typically are score very high in neuroticism. Um, neuroticism just kind of has this general negative colloquial sound and people just go oh, I'm not neurotic, but that's part of like different personality inventories and, and norm- basically what neuroticism has to do with is like attention to detail, um, focus and the anxiety response to managing variables, but the desire to also manage a lot of variables. Um, So it's not always necessarily a bad thing. Like most A-type people, uh, most people who are more analytical, uh, a lot of intelligent people are also score pretty highly in neuroticism. So it's not all bad. I don't want that to sound bad. Um, Also, perfectionism is is typically scored very highly in bodybuilders, which kind of goes hand in hand with neuroticism. It's kind of how it's directed towards their athletic or body composition pursuit. Uh, And there's also obsessive tendencies. So bodybuilders in general, uh, not always, but on average, they share more qualities with people who have OCD than, say, your general pop or people who are non-competitive weightlifters. Um, And then not always, but people who are are bodybuilders have those traits, but then some people involved with bodybuilding also uh, tend to have uh, binary thinking traits. So, for example, they tend to look at things in black or white. Um, you know, either this is, I'll give you an example of how I used to think like this. Uh, someone asked me like, man, how are you so disciplined? We're talking like 2005 before I'd even competed. And I said, well, I just treat every lifestyle choice. I asked myself the question, is this going to benefit or is it going to hurt my bodybuilding goals? You know, and while that binary thinking made it very easy to make decisions at dinner or at, when I went out to drink or whether I'd go to a workout or not, or whether my sleep was important or what time I wake up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's also a nonsensical way of looking at like, that. That's absolutely not the way the world works. Like not every decision, A, affects bodybuilding at all, nor is it purely beneficial or harmful, you know? Um, we love to think in black and white terms societally or generally as a person, but it's largely not helpful unless we're making like, in the moment, life or death decisions, you know? And we're simply not running from saber-toothed tigers across the Bering Strait anymore, so largely it's not helpful for something like, like sport. Uh, Unless you're on the field right now and bodybuilding is not that kind of sport bodybuilding is a lifestyle uh, And sometimes you compete so it's a bad fit in my opinion So binary thinking and lastly uh, another thing that's not always there, but often is is the need for control Um, And a lot of bodybuilders are drawn to the sport as an expression of a need for control um, especially those who have a history of eating disorders um, this is an area basically where you get to control as many variables as possible and which can be kind of cool. You get to be your own science experiment. You get to manipulate one variable and you get to see how that actually impacts your physique. And I think a lot of people who love the quote unquote, like science experiment, uh, of the off season, the in season, tweaking, posing, doing that, bringing up weak points, uh, all of the, the tweaks and twists of dials to then see what you see on stage. That's really exciting. It's one of the funnest part of it. However, um that, that need for control can also be, uh, I guess, every, every positive aspect you have, there's almost always a double-edged sword to it. Um, you know, so that, that binary thinking, your ability to turn off certain things and turn on certain things may allow the bodybuilder to do what's needed to get on stage with striated glutes or veins in their abs, et cetera. Uh, but it's also what might lead them towards an unhealthy relationship with their body or food, as an example. So there's that whole background of of what personality traits are more common in bodybuilders, uh, and they overlap a lot with people who have a higher risk of developing eating disorders. And then if you take that, and then if you take what bodybuilders must do obligatorily to get into shape, which is where some of the physiology comes in and some of the the practices of modern bodybuilding, that's when you kind of get this melting pot that might result in some oh shit things. Um, But before we even kind of, talk about the, the different influences, if we just talk about, okay, percentages, numbers, um, there's some pretty striking issues with having this predisposition and getting involved in bodybuilding. So, for example, in some reports, and we don't have good enough data sets to say this is representative of everyone, all people, drug-free or not, whether they're from Brazil or Russia or the United States or the UK, uh, whether they've engaged with you know science or not, but if we just look at some of these broad percentages, um, there's a really scary figure. There was a, uh, a survey of 16 physique male, men's physique competitors. So it's uh, uh, board shorts uh, division um, in in Brazil, uh, not drug tested, as far as I'm aware. And five of the 16 uh, shared that they had a previous history of eating disorders. That's um, almost the third. Um, And one had a body image issue and the other four had history of binge eating disorder. There's another one from the 90s where I want to say, I think something like 43% of a cohort of female physique competitors used to have anorexia, which is much more serious and it's a higher number. Um, And those numbers like pop in and out of of, of the research at different times Um, and that's, that's a much higher than not only the general population, but also people who lift weights but don't compete in physique sports. So there's some decent comparisons. Now, that's not to say, hey, bodybuilding causes these issues, which is the big disconnect. Uh, anytime you look at percentages and correlations, we don't know which way causation is going. And I would argue that it's probably much more likely that bodybuilding attracts people who have a history of eating disorders rather than people who are totally fine do bodybuilding, and then they wake up one day and they have anorexia. Um, So, you know, the question is, is is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer is probably, man, it it depends. Like if you were someone who was actually admitted to a hospital and and force-fed because you were near death uh, and you had anorexia, which, by the way, anorexia is one of the most serious eating disorders and it has a very, very high um, mortality rate, if if if, if we just want to call it what it is, um, because of the, the, the kind of the loop people get trapped in. And you then actually find yourself, like if someone says, yeah, I used to have anorexia, now I'm in bodybuilding, the knee-jerk reaction might be, oh, no, you shouldn't be in bodybuilding. But another way to look at it is, wow, you're actually in a sport where you're trying to put on weight and gain muscle, and only at certain times are you trying to lean down. And previously, you were essentially on long-term suicide watch and being force-fed so you wouldn't kill yourself from starvation. Like that's a huge shift. You know, uh, bodybuilding is, is undeniably healthier than, than being currently uh, dealing with anorexia. But let's say someone has history of binge eating disorder and they get it under control and they decide to do a bodybuilding comp. That might not be good. You know, now you're going to expose yourself to, to extreme levels of hunger, a rigid diet, and basically all the things that tend to prompt binges and people who have no history of eating disorders, and, but you have a history that's probably not good. You know, so it's, it's a complex, there's complexity to this discussion, which we were really trying to get at here. So I think I'll leave it there because I could just ramble on forever, but that kind of gives you an idea of some of the personality traits that, that are not, everyone has them in bodybuilding, but that are much more represented in the bodybuilding community and, and the higher incidence of history of eating disorders, uh, or, or current eating disorders as well.
0: um, that's a, that's a really really complete um answer and it, it actually answers a few questions that I, I was i was hoping to to ask later on um one of those being um i, I think you you it, it's mentioned in the paper itself the the chicken and the egg scenario of which comes first is it that um, uh let's say bodybuilding itself causes these uh personality traits within people or is it that people of certain personality traits are attracted attracted to bodybuilding And just to kind of to touch on that, do you think that there's a possibility that among certain people with some of these personality traits or, let's say, an underlying eating disorder or or a predisposition to an eating disorder, do you think that bodybuilding or physique sports can appear to them as being some sort of a mask for their underlying eating disorder and kind of some way of making it more socially acceptable? Uh, Easy answer is
1: yes. Um, and the, the more complex answer is there's actually some research looking at there, there's, it's rare nuanced, and we're hoping to do more research in this area. but there's actually what's called a, the bodybuilding dependence scale, uh, which I think has appeared in a couple published research studies where essentially uh, the researchers acknowledge, hey, bodybuilding makes you do some stuff that looks like disordered eating, but as soon as preps over it goes away. Um, and therefore we can't call that an eating disorder. Um, however, not all bodybuilders are – it doesn't go away in everyone, and, and some people uh, seem to be dependent on bodybuilding, much like exercise is a positive thing, but we all have heard of exercise addiction or exercise dependence. So there's scales and ratings for that, to where can a healthy behavior become a, an unhealthy obsession – or a, uh, something that does more harm than good or, or concurrently causes harm with the good. Um, so there are definitely people in bodybuilding, um, and I've worked with them myself, who bodybuilding is exactly how you described it. Um, they they eventually typically feel handcuffed to the sport. Uh, a really common experience, uh, and this is more anecdotal, is that the only way they know how to prevent this off-season Steady weight gain through semi-uncontrolled eat overeating. Because they're always hungry. They never feel satiated after meals. And bulking becomes kind of an excuse, or the off season becomes an excuse, just for uh, essentially what, what what comes down to uh, either bulimia or just binge eating disorder. Um, slow, steady weight gain. They just feel like you know what? If I don't do another contest prep, I'll be obese. I'm terrified of becoming fat. And the only way I know how to manage it is these kind of season long cyclical periods of of restrict and then overeat and then restrict and overeat. And I've met competitors who compete every year just because six months in their off-season, they hate themselves. And the only way they know how to deal with it is getting back into prep. Um, And that's absolutely not the same thing as someone who gains a purposeful amount of weight, assesses their body composition, and makes a sportsman or sportswoman-based optimal decision on, on what's gonna best improve their, their chances on stage, which might actually be for a natural competitor who's at this stage of their, their career taking two years off. But two years off, they're just too afraid. They'd be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm much too heavy and, uh, and, and I, I just can't deal with that and the only way I know how to have control is through contest prep. So they eventually get a sense of burnout and they get handcuffed to the sport and then they leave it and then they have to <laughs> figure out what does eating and my relationship with food and my body look like without the sport? And hopefully it gets better. It probably does. But there's a, definitely a dark time where they have to accept that uh, being in this kind of shape is, is, is not a realistic thing to, to maintain uh, and kind of relearning what, what normal is. Um, and there's definitely – so one of the, the, the moderating variables, if you will, as to whether or not a competitor is more negatively affected by the contest prep phase is how much they, they, they place their self-worth in being able to manipulate and control their body composition. Uh, so for example, there was a study where they looked at um, psychological stress, and they found that bodybuilders versus non-competitive bodybuilders had higher psychological stress in response to manipulating their calories, even though they were scored the same on dietary restraint compared to non-competitors meaning that that both this group of of non-competitors and competitors were restraining themselves and they followed a specific diet. You know, they had their, quote, unquote, bodybuilding lifestyle diet, but it stressed the competitors out more um, because they had more invested in it, presumably. Uh, They're they're a competitor. This means something. If they screw it up, it's not just uh, that meal. It's not just something they can account for. It is their, their identity. So the more closely associated someone's identity is their eating behavior and their body image, now we have problems, and and this is, again, kind of going to anecdote. The coaching perspective, uh, then, if you have someone involved in physique sport, is that you really need to get a distinction between your self-worth, uh, your uh, appreciation of your physique, uh, and, and your, your appreciation of, of, your, of your body, and then your competitive physique, and kind of seeing it uh, in parallel with some of the Athletic identity research. So for example, there's a whole line of research showing that if you take an American football player or a rugby player or a soccer player or a pitcher and they have a very high athletic identity. Like if you ask them, who are you? their first response is, Well, I play baseball, you know, something like that. If they get injured or are forcibly retired or don't make a team or something surprises them and they're not prepared for it, they can no longer play sport, they go through a very tough period of depression. So if you go through an experience in contest prep um, that, that makes you feel like you're not a bodybuilder, you can't bodybuilder, it's too hard, you can't stick with it, uh, all of a sudden that can have really disastrous psychological effects because if you see yourself as my identity as a bodybuilder. So I try to get competitors to see their physique the same way uh, I get a, you know, a pitcher would see a 90-mile-per-hour 90, 90 mile fastball. It doesn't make you a better person, hopefully, you know, that, that's the goal of getting that picture. It makes you better at your sport. Um, and that's difficult to do um, in certain cases. Like, for example, in my anecdotal experience, uh, bikini competitors and men's fitness competitors typically have, on average, a greater percentage of them seem to struggle with eating disorders, body image issues than when I work with male or female competitive bodybuilders. And I think that's because it's much easier to conflate societal messages and traditional uh, masculine and feminine ideals of beauty uh with what the judging standards are because no one's asking you like there's no societal message that says you know what you need to get a woman veins in your glutes you know or like you know what makes you a a, a really a really hot gal that all the guys are gonna love is cap belts you know like that's that's not a thing you know um but bikini and men's in men's fitness it's 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 closer to what a pageant is. It's much closer to what the messages were already getting pushed on us from society. And these messages are actually growing for men. Like, it's always been there for women. They've always kind of had a real a real shit level of pressure from, from society. Um, but now that we have the Marvel movie explosion, and I love comic books like anybody else. I read them before. They were cool. And uh, action figures getting smaller waists, bigger arms, bigger delts, um, and, you know, Instagram, uh, influencers, and more and more, you know, Photoshop, and basically the muscular ideal is on the rise. And the exposure level and exposure rate is much higher. We're seeing body image issues climbing with men. So I think now, uh, unfortunately, a lot of young men are getting the same or similar level of exposure to what women have been getting. And that's might be why we're seeing those higher rates. Um, so anyway, uh, to kind of bring it all back to, to what I'm getting at, depending on how much one's self worth, Athletic identity and uh, their, their appreciation of their body is either positive or negative or tied to bodybuilding. This can relate, this, this can result in uh, whether their exposure to the sport makes things worse or is neutral or positive. Um, because there are definitely positive psychological things that come from physique sports. It's been reported a couple times that people experience uh, a greater ability to handle things and more self efficacy and self esteem. And if we look at, there was a meta-analysis that came out not too long ago um, by, I think, Mitchell, um, where looking at, at competitive bodybuilders, there was an inverse relationship between self-esteem and self-efficacy and body image issues. So that means that the more kind of lock-solid your, your perception of self and your self-worth worth is, uh, the more resilient you are towards um, towards some of these issues. So, and again, we don't know which way causation goes, but... Again, if you get into bodybuilding because you hate yourself and you don't like the way you look, and if you actually are, are going, right, I need these seven random people to look at me naked to tell me whether I'm beautiful or not or, or attractive or not, that's not going to go well, you know? Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think you need to be able to separate your, your walk-around physique, your self-worth from your competitive physique. And if you can't, then it's probably not a good thing for you to be competing. And it will potentially expose you to a greater risk of developing some of these problems
0: okay and and that kind of kind of moves us nicely into one one question that I wanted to ask you, which was so when i when I first started up my 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 own Instagram a few years back, I noticed that there were a huge amount of um, young people, both men and women, who seemed to be very, very new to the fitness industry um or they even got into the fitness industry through their own let's say weight loss journey or something like that. And a lot of their profiles would say something like, um, first competition coming up, uh, you know, it might, it might, say something like winter 2019 or next one would say, or coming summer 2020. It seemed like these people were all getting ready to get involved in bodybuilding or some sort of physique sport without a huge amount of, let's say kind of questioning their decision-making going into that. Um, and, I was just wondering, like, from your perspective and especially from your, your um, experience as both a competitor and as a coach, what are your thoughts on people who want to get into this lifestyle, who just, who kind of say to themselves, yeah, I, I think I want to do a bodybuilding show. I think I want to do a physique show. Would you be dissuasive or or what kind of advice would you, would you give them or what would you want them to know?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, that's the big thing is that I, I, I'm, all the, I'm not going to sit here and tell people bodybuilding is a negative or a positive because um, I have largely experienced it in the, this latter stage of my competitive career personally as a huge positive in my life. And I feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to, to competitive physique sport. And it's, made me, it's built my self-efficacy and built my self-esteem. However, at times, it was, it was a negative. Um, and you know, I, I had, uh, I probably could have been diagnosed with binge eating disorder, say back in 2007 after my first show. Uh, and I didn't have any history of eating disorders or anything like that. Uh, and I just all of a sudden couldn't control, um, my, my eating behavior. I felt like I lost my, my bodybuilding card because I'd been so tight and so restricted and looked great. And then within weeks I looked like a, uh, just kind of a bloated balloon. Uh, and and I was just like, what happened to me? Why, not, not even just my, my body, because I didn't come into it thinking like I was ugly. I needed to fix it. I came into it um, for, for largely, I think this would be fun and cool and a way to express myself. But I, I really came to value and, and see my self-worth on how disciplined I was. You know, my discipline, my dedication, my desire, all the things that, that I think are, are positive traits to develop from, from sport in general, but also bodybuilding. Now, all of a sudden, I had none. And I would, you know, get up and decide to go to Taco Bell for a meal instead of eating a more traditional bodybuilding meal and then kill a whole Ben and Jerry's tub. And I'm like, what about me as a bodybuilder? Who am I? Like it was, so it was a negative effect on me at one time and then a very positive effect at another. So I think for, for, to make these kind of overarching statements about whether bodybuilding, competitive bodybuilding is good or bad, you're automatically wrong as soon as you kind of make some, some broad-sweeping statement. Um, about it being positive or negative. But um, what, so therefore, what I think is really important, because people don't, you know, you don't, you don't join the bodybuilding team in high school. You know, it's not like, do you want to play soccer or bodybuilding, you know, when you're a freshman, you're in high school. Uh, it's almost completely joined uh, voluntarily as an adult, as an amateur, once you're uh, 18 or older, or typically even older than that, as you find out about it and you get exposed to this weird flexing, Oil shave thing uh, with fake tanner, uh, you know, um, quote unquote sport. You know, so the people who do decide to get involved in it uh, are part of a very niche community. And I think what's really important is when you have those niche communities, is to make sure that you come in with your eyes wide open and you know what's actually involved. You don't have a romanticized version of it. You get essentially what I would call informed consent, which is kind of the goal of this article. Is anyone who's getting it who decides they want to compete knows what could happen may potentially happen, uh, and the full spectrum of what we know about it. Um, and it's not my, my job to tell adults whether they should or shouldn't do it, but I, I do want them to be able to make that decision and not be surprised like I was like, what the hell is happening? Why don't I have hunger signals for 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 three months post show? You know? Um, so I think that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to get out with this. (laughs) Now that said, there was an interesting thing you said. You said, is this lifestyle for everyone, should they compete? Now, those are two separate things. You can absolutely uh, follow, going back to what you said about being involved with physical culture, you can absolutely follow the lifestyle of bodybuilding and never compete. And that can be almost completely positive thing with very few negative risks. I do think that once you make something a competitive pursuit, uh, that really changes it. And that's actually why if you go to the beginning of this article, Some people are just like, oh, this guy's wanking off about history. Now, it's very important. Like the introduction, I talked about the very first bodybuilding competitions, what their characteristics were and how it changed, and that was largely because you were competing in a specific aspect. And specialization is a natural part of sport, uh, and, and it makes people better. It's the reason why world records keep getting broken and people keep getting better at what they do, but it's not without a cost. I'm not saying it's bad or good. We just need to understand that cost. So like the very, very first uh, bodybuilding competitions, some of the folks who competed didn't even lift weights. They were just athletes, and we, were, we, we admired the athletic physique. We thought it had aesthetic beauty, and we wanted to go, you know what, let's take a look at all the athletes in our country, get them together, and, and, and kind of just appreciate and, and maybe make it a competition of who has the most athletic body. But it, there was this complete marriage of form-following function and function following form and there was there was no even cultural perception that they could be different uh, to really give you an idea uh, of this every bodybuilding competition in the late 1890s was done off the back of a weightlifting competition there was one in France in like 1898 and then the ones uh, even even through the Mr America competition Mr America was always done the day after uh, senior weightlifting nationals so this persisted all the way through the 30s this kind of merged blend uh, of athleticism and, and, and form following. And in the earliest ones, again, some people, some people did not lift weights, and they wouldn't even reward you for having the most muscular body, where now the bodybuilding division is who's the most muscular and, and who's the leanest. And if someone can not disproportionate, the biggest, leanest person typically wins. Um, but they used to have a separate most muscular award back in the day. Like, okay, yeah, you don't have a beautiful body, you're, you're jacked, so here you get this little consolation prize. So things have changed. Uh, people didn't diet for shows. People didn't even lift weights for shows sometimes, um, and the biggest didn't necessarily win. Um, and uh, the, the judges at the very first national-level huge competition in the U.K. called the Great Competition in 1901 uh, was uh, the, the author of Sherlock Holmes, uh, a sculptor who was also an amateur athlete, and then eugene Sandow, the, the, the godfather of modern bodybuilding, the first person who – essentially took the vaudeville strongman act and said, oh, guess what I look like because of lifting. Uh, so that was kind of – so there was an artistic element and there was an athletic element. that were always embedded into it. And then with specialization and people looking into, okay, well, how do I just maximize the thing I'm really competing in, my physique? That's when, okay, weightlifting seems to have the biggest impact. Oh, man, the leaner I get, uh, the better I look. Oh, well, it seems like when I cut out these certain foods and us getting closer and closer unraveling the picture to going, oh, I need a caloric deficit, and I need progressive over, overload through resistance training, uh, and then I need to train every single muscle group, and I need to spend more of my time doing that and less like, you know, swimming or or, or, or doing general athleticism. And, yes, physiques got, got improved. We saw some really cool stuff. Man, we started to look more like the Greek statues, and I love it. And trust me, that's the way I train too. I'm not out there swimming. Um, mainly just because it's the winter right now but uh but anyway no, no but seriously like I, I i trained to optimize my performance in, in my given sports uh so I, I i definitely appreciate that however it came with the, some of the, some of these other negative aspects so anyway i, I kind of got off on a big tangent there but it's important to understand that bodybuilding will mean something different to someone if it is 1890 if it's 1930 if it's 1960 when they actually have the split between uh, kind of the, the IFBB that was very focused on bodybuilders for bodybuilding versus kind of the AAU, which was still like, hey, we're strength athletes and we compete in bodybuilding, to then, you know, looking at 1980, once everyone in, 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 in competitive bodybuilding was was pretty much at the highest level on, on uh, performance enhancing drugs, to then early in the 1980s when there was enough uh, – actually this happened a little earlier, but 19, late 60s to early 80s, the – the growth of natural bodybuilding organizations popped up and a lot of people who are going, hold on, I'm not really down with this whole obligatory use of performance enhancing drugs just to appreciate weight training and the physical effects uh, to where we are today. So there is a different cultural perception, competitive demands, new divisions are popping up, um, new voices in the community are always saying different things. And then some people, when you say the word bodybuilding, Uh, They'll just think lifting weights and maybe stretching every every now and again and staying up with uh, their cardiovascular health and and not letting themselves get too high in body fat. Other people will think uh, Ronnie Coleman. You know, other people will think, you know, Brian Whitaker or or, or someone in the natural bodybuilding community. So uh, the expression of, of quote, unquote, bodybuilding can mean many different things. So go back and answer your original question. I would seriously encourage anyone who is thinking about getting into bodybuilding to consider, do they need to compete? Is that going to be something that's beneficial for them? And I think doing it as a career move, just to get on stage, say I've gone through it as a trainer, I don't think it's necessary, and I think people underestimate the cost. I think if someone wants to get into competitive bodybuilding, because you can just do a photo shoot, like if you want to show that you you know how to manipulate your body comp, you don't need to uh, get on stage and go through that process. Like, if someone wants to get in competitive bodybuilding, they better – like, like you should – it should not be an option to not do it. You should be so obsessed with the idea, so motivated about it, excited, can't think about anything else. Like, um, like I'm not going to not compete in bodybuilding. That's just who I am. It's what I do. It's a part of my life. And uh, for those folks, I'm also crazy, and I will support you, uh, and I'll f- help you figure out the best way to do it possible but for everyone else, like you, can totally be part of the clan and not get on stage, and probably have a more holistic uh, appreciation of, of, of everything, and, and have a better and have less stresses that are negative, and have to manage less things uh, if you're if you get into uh, you know the lifestyle bodybuilding, essentially physical culture, you know, lifting weights, eating healthy, living a life of moderation, uh, and 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 treating yourself holistically towards kind of uh, health in general but still pushing hard and being an iron gamer. I think that's that's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And whether you want to don the speedo or don the posing suit, um, it's for it's for almost no one, but for those who do decide to do it, informed consent.
0: Absolutely, I, I suppose when we're thinking about it, if you're ever getting into anything, the more or the better educated you are before you go into it, the better your decision is going to be when you, when you finally do make it. And uh, And then you can also, you don't have anybody to blame but yourself when you do make that final decision. Um, as well. Um, one thing that you mentioned there, and I think it's really, really important is that if, if people do end up going into the whole um, competitive side of bodybuilding, um, and I think it, this applies to anything that is competitive, you do need a certain level of, um, well, you do need to be a, a obsessive to a certain extent, um, because if you are there competing with other people and not just competing with yourself, um, you need to put in a certain amount of both mental and physical grind. And often obsession is something that can kind of help people to drive them to do that. Um, I don't know what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I would say you need commitment. I think, um, of course, you know, bodybuilders are going to celebrate obsession because they have a tendency towards that and commitment to such an extreme goal will look like obsession to someone from the outside. Um, and essentially, uh, whether you are going to go through a four-year Olympic cycle and deal with injuries and, um, you know, long training hours and be like a real athlete who might have to train 30 hours a week and, uh, and do all kinds of stuff and travel and, you know, deal with burnout, push the envelope, actually get into overtraining syndrome and then come back and then figure out where you need to be, that's the reality regardless of sport if you want to compete at, at your top potential Um, and that may be categorized as obsession by some, but there's a distinction between obsession and commitment, because obsession, uh, it has the connotation that there is is nothing that you would uh, relinquish that goal for, or step aside, or that you would place at a higher priority, but commitment is different. That means that you're not wishy-washy. So I've never seen a prep go well when someone's like, you know, I'm going to start this diet and we'll see where it goes. I might get on stage. Almost every time I can go, you're not going to get on stage. Like it's, it's going to get you're, – you're, like it's going to be pointless. Like at a certain point, you're, you're leaner than you even think looks good. Uh, your strength is down. Your libido is, is non-functional. You're obsessed with food. You sleep four hours, pop awake, and then think about food and go back to sleep. Um, you're lethargic. And you're you're less healthy than you were two, per, two, two body fat percentage points higher. Uh, what why like what what am I why am I doing this it is basically where the person gets to. Um, and either they flip the switch and go you know what I'm gonna commit to this regardless and, and I'm gonna get on stage or they go yeah that was fine like I have no I, do, I have no need to get below say 10 percent for a guy or uh, you know say 18 percent for a woman um, and and that that was good I'll schedule a photo shoot and get it done with or you know they. They go to, you know, a cheesecake factory and, and they, don't have, they don't have time to schedule a photo shoot and they learn something. Um, so commitment ne- doesn't necessarily require obsession. Uh, a really good example we had on Iron Culture recently, Brian Whitaker, who is uh, undeniably one of the best natural bodybuilders in, in, in the world and who has ever walked the face of the earth. He's the first person to in the same year win the IFPA Jordan Cup and WNBF Worlds. Uh, and he fought tooth and nail Uh, to to try to win WMBF Worlds for years since the mid-2000s, winning the lightweight title close to double-digit numbers numbers of times and coming in second to folks like uh, Clarence McGill, uh, Siobhan Cunningham, and uh, back-in-the-day epic battles with Jim Cordova. And then finally, after years and years and years and years and years and years and years um, of just really maximizing what he had left, like posing, symmetry, and getting leaner and leaner, stage weight pretty much stayed the same, um, he was able to unify the titles by getting just incredibly diced and peaking well back in 2015. And really telling uh, was that when he got on Iron Culture and he told us his priorities, bodybuilding was third or fourth after his spiritual beliefs, family, and career. Uh, and he would travel, uh, skip training days, and he would manipulate his life. He, he, he basically used the term... I keep bodybuilding optimal within the constraints of my life. And that's, that, that's where he doesn't have that binary thinking that is problematic that I talked about before, where it's everything is bodybuilding or, or worse. For him, it was like, well, no, here's my life. I'm a bodybuilder as part of that, and I'm going to do bodybuilding to the best of my abilities, but I'm not going to be a worse father or a worse academic. Of course, this, this amazing bodybuilder happens to be a PhD in economics as well. Uh, or or uh, I'm not going to uh, go against my spiritual beliefs to to be better at bodybuilding and clearly it didn't actually become a problem like he, he he's he's not only is he a world champion but he's not a world champion from just having you know the best genetics on, on the planet make no mistake he's got good genetics um but he beat people with much better genetics by by maximizing all the things that are actually in his locus of control like conditioning and the man is ridiculously peeled so you know that the things that are that push you psychologically the most are the things that he manipulated the most. Like, you know, his, 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 diet was, was probably harder than others who weren't as lean as him. Um, and that was something that he emphasized over, over time. So uh, I think that's a, that's a great example of, of an important distinction between commitment and obsession. Uh, I think when we think obsession, we think someone who uh, doesn't go out to eat for their, their 10 year anniversary uh, with their wife, because sorry, honey, I'm, I'm dying this year. Uh, we'll get it next year. Um, while someone like Brian Whitaker would absolutely go out to eat and he would adjust around it and make, make the best decision he could in that context, um, but wouldn't let his prep affect his marriage to the best of his ability. So I don't think you need to be obsessive, but I absolutely think you need to be committed. And to the outsider,
0: they may not look any different. Absolutely. I, I think that example of Brian Whitaker is a perfect example of how somebody can have a, a genuine love and a passion for bodybuilding, um, but just not let it take over their life entirely um, and let it be part of their life instead of letting making it be their life. It's very, very clear from kind of speaking with you and from people listening to you in in this conversation, but like just from all the content that you put out that you absolutely love bodybuilding. It's a real passion for you. You know, your your PhD um, was in strength and conditioning. You know, you you focused on um, RPE, You've published papers on um, uh, strategies, uh, nutritional strategies for bodybuilding. Uh, you've obviously done this most recent paper. Um, you're a bit of a bodybuilding historian, um, so you know you, you're looking at like bodybuilding and strength sports from so many different aspects and so so many different facets, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And and one thing that um, kind of tops all that off is, is you are. You're not just a coach yourself, but you're also a competitor, and you've just recently finished um, a, a a spree of um, bodybuilding competitions this year. Um, and I'm sure that as you were prepping for that, you were still in the final you were in the final stages of writing the the paper on kind of towards a, a sustainable nutrition paradigm. And I'm just wondering, how did your let's say concurrent experience of prepping for a bodybuilding show and going through all of the hardships that, you know, that you mentioned in this, um, paper, you know, like things like, you know, excessive hunger and, you know, some of the, let's say neurotic tendencies, how did that affect how you were writing the paper?
1: I think it, it made me realize how much the, um, the effect of experience, um, the effect of framing, uh, so the way you perceive something and the uh, the story you tell about something. Uh, and then the methods that one uses can have either a positive or negative moderating impact on all of these variables. Um, and if you'd asked me this question, let's say, in April or May or March, when I was just before, uh, during, or right after my very first show that I did in April, Uh, I would have given you probably a rosier picture than if you'd asked me say in in June or all the way till now um, where the biological aspect made me realize that some of this is, it's unavoidable to a certain extent depending on the division and how lean you get and what you have to do to get there. Uh, So there are, it made me realize both the modifiable and non -modifiable, modifiable aspects of prep, which can have huge impacts. So, I shit you not, man. The the process by which I got on stage in April made me feel like I was I was like cheating, you know. Um, I wasn't tracking my my calories on any kind of tracking app. Uh, I was only weighing out certain foods where like there can be a large variability in the uh, like the calories if you're off by a little bit, which wasn't much because I pretty I had a pretty low energy density to most of my food. Um, I was eating out multiple times per week and uh, estimating calories, making good decisions, and moderating my portion sizes and um, and, and things like that. I uh, I traveled to a conference in February and didn't bring any food with me, um, and and then I did start to track this because we were starting to push a little harder and I was manipulating smaller numbers and really wanted to make sure I got in shape. And I brought on Alberto to to give me to kind of be my my second pair of eyes and my um, my coach. And he took a more minor role and an increasingly more, more major roles. I got deeper into the season and I lost more objectivity. Um, but he was kind of like just vetting my decisions. Like, for example, at that conference that was in Gold Coast, Australia, he made me take an extra refeed day just because I, I, I was looking like I hadn't had refeed. He's like, you're pretty flat. And I was like, oh, that's, I'm glad you said that because I've been really just focused on getting shredded. Like I'm, you know, it's late February and I'm competing early April. Like, oh, shit, I'm less than a month out. Uh, Just a little over a month out, I got to be on on point, and he was like, "Yeah, but we also want you to look like you have muscle mass." So, um, so little things like that. Um, He had me switch from you know a five-two setup of low days refeeds to a four-three. So, if anything, he started he made it easier for me just because I was probably pushing a little too hard. Um, This this thing this is something that I I I couldn't decide if I wanted to share just because I think it'd blow the mind of most uh, competitors. But for my peak week in Hawaii. I didn't go to the grocery store, so I did my entire peak, which was kind of like a, a backload, which just simply means having more carbohydrates immediately prior to the show. i do like kind of a, like an early backload, and then I'd taper in because uh, I tend to get – I need to, like, clean up, quote-unquote. Like, it takes a while for my water balance to get back to normal after eating a lot of food. So, essentially, I had a high day on Wednesday, moderate day on Thursday, um, and then kind of like – moderate-ish a day on Friday, adjusted based on how I look, and then I eat relatively low amounts of food and just emphasize sodium and water on game day, and that's kind of my typical peaking strategy um, that that seemed to work, work works well for me. Uh, I did that without tracking, uh, or I was still tracking, because I, I had started about a few weeks out, but I did it without weighing food, and I did it without going to the grocery store. It was all done at restaurants. So, so I always went to the local, like I just did sushi, and then the night prior... Uh, my aunt came and, and, and watched me compete because my, my dad's side of the family is from uh, the Big Island, and we went out to, like, a hibachi grilled Japanese place, like, with the, with the chef who does the uh, flipping stuff and throwing stuff at you, and I got, like, um, like shrimp and, and white rice and uh, some, some fried veggies, and, uh, and, and that was, like, my last meal, and it was just eyeballed, and I had a really, really solid peak. It was the best I'd ever looked on stage at that point. Um, and then I went to Italy, uh, within 48 hours later and did a two day conference there. It was for bodybuilding. So I was being hosted by bodybuilders that made it easier to stay on point, didn't track and had a purposeful diet break. Um, so basically I had a all in all in all with travel peaking and post show. I had basically two weeks at roughly maintenance calories and I came back and once I had kind of let go of some of the uh, the, the water retention from the flight because Italy is really far from from uh, New Zealand. Uh, I weighed in 0.5 kilos heavier than I was uh, at my like on stage and looking better. Um, so I basically did an auto-regulated peak week and diet break immediately after a show in Italy uh, on vacation post conference, um, and 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 it worked. You know, and I was. At the point where I had a couple glute striations, um, and I was definitely no one would say like I wasn't in shape, but people would say you know you could be a little bit leaner to get into elite conditioning status. Um, so so if if I had to stop my season there, I would be like you know popping my collar and 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 being like yeah, bad well, it's easy, and you know, I just gotta if you just change the monitoring behaviors and you do this shit right, it's easy. And I think that is true to a point. However, to go from that level of conditioning to Unbelievably, just probably two, two kilos lower body weight for me and of losing pretty much all uh, body fat. Um, that was, it took it from like a 3 out of 10 difficulty to a solid, at it's worse, like 8 out of 10 difficulty. Um, and pushing myself past those barriers, having to get into like a very low relative energy uh, availability and um, doing what I needed to do to get myself shredded that's where, like in June, uh, I was I was experiencing extreme hunger, extreme lethargy, not sleeping through the night. Libido was totally gone. Uh, training was hard. I was irritable. I had to really manage my emotions, um, and it was largely what I would describe as physiologically difficult and psychologically difficult because of that. And my my emotions were a little bit of a roller coaster. But I also I still had the framing in place, so I knew why. Uh, it didn't mean that I was failing. It just meant prep was getting hard. Um, and I needed to rely a lot more on Alberto to, to kind of let me know that this this was part of the process. And I, I had been I had been uh, leaner than I was in April previously. Like in uh, '09, I definitely got to uh, nearly as lean as I got this year, but not quite. Um, and uh, so anyway, so I, I'd been through the process previously, uh, so I knew how hard it could get. It didn't get that hard because I was doing things a lot better and I had a better perspective. Uh, And then I was able to then get some perspective on the difference between what you have to do to get shredded uh, and then the effects just purely of being shredded. So this is what I find very interesting. Um, So the worst, worst phase was 8 out of 10 difficulty was basically being shredded and eating no calories. Like your body's going, hey, I don't have glycogen, I don't have fat, and you're not eating anything. Like why do you – this is a bad idea. Like you're going to die, you know. Um, and then it's like, and feel terrible, eat a lot of food. Like, this is what this is the signals you're getting. Like, I'm going to tell you in, in no uncertain terms, this is a terrible idea, and you should do everything different. Like, you need to stop lifting weights. Like, that should feel terrible. Um, you need to stop doing this cardio. Uh, you need to eat more. Uh, you need to eat high-calorie food that tastes good. Like, put that apple down. Go get some cheesecake. I'm not going to let you sleep. I'm not going to let you have fun training. I'm not going to even let you be nice to your family members unless you eat that fucking cheesecake. And I, and in my head, I'm like, no, I'm going to be nice. I'm, 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 and I'm going to take melatonin, and I'm going to get at least six hours of sleep. And I'll take a nap, and I'm still going to lift weights. Damn you, body. So that, that was kind of the worst of it. Um, but then the, the, the beauty of being ready in June for shows in July and August was that from essentially – Four week, three weeks out from my, my first show and my second show, July 6th, and then subsequently five weeks out from the next one and then eight weeks out from my last show, the calories just started coming up the whole time. Uh, so I was on below 9 kcals per pound, which is uh, right around 20 kcals per kg on average at my hardest point. Uh, and then it just started climbing, climbing, climbing. I added uh, immediately once we hit a certain conditioning standard, Uh, I jumped up my low days by 400 calories, which was still low, admittedly, when you're under 9 kcals per pound. And then we were adding about 150 calories per week until by the end of it, um, I was just eating between 2,400 to 2,800 calories every day uh, at a body weight of about 80 kgs, morning weight. The lowest I saw, I think, was uh, 79 flat, Um, depending on how basically hydrated, full, and how much food bulk I had in my stomach uh, and how carved up I was, um, and eating at maintenance and just not doing any cardio anymore, um, and training more often heavier, harder, and just feeling really good, but still feeling beat up, food focused. So I I could tell there were, there were just, the the effects of being that shredded have independent effects, even when the food comes back up. The food brought it down from, say, let's say an eight out of 10 difficulty at its hardest, down to what I would describe as like a, maybe a four to five out of ten. So it wasn't back at that like kind of three out of ten that it was when I was um, just not quite as lean. But there was some. There's definitely some independent effects of being ridiculously stupidly shredded, where your butt no longer looks like you know a butt. It looks like a walnut, uh, the size of of, of one's glutes, uh, and you have veins in places that you are like, what? Like I never knew that was there. Um, yeah, and and like it gets to a point where. Like, I I would say probably in in February or March was when my wife was uh, more attracted to me. Like, oh, wow, you look really ripped. This is awesome. And then, like, from, like, after April onward, it was kind of like, you're getting gross. Like, your face is sunken and your beard's not hiding it anymore. I actually like when you have an ass. Like, I don't know. Like, there's, and, and what is going, like, your quads are, like, there's way too much detail there. No, I don't, I don't, there's, like, lines and shit. Like, it's moving. Like, it looks like you have an alien on your body. She took a video of me while I was doing incline press, uh, just incline like, incline barbell. And, like, the tendon attachment and the long head of my tricep, it was, like, you could see these lines from across the room. She took the video on, like, lo-fi Instagram. And uh, and I just, and, she, and, she, and she, she handed it to me, and she was like, look at that. And she just looked on her face like, like, like roadkill was in front of her or something. And I, and, uh, I, and I posted, like, my wife thinks I'm gross. She took this picture because I look disgusting. Like, so it was, there was a, you know, there, there's a certain level of leanness that is only conducive to, um, you know, getting plastic trophies. And, uh, and, and that is also associated with, at least experientially, uh, and this is very common when you talk to people in the bodybuilding division who compete at the highest level and have gotten this lean, that there, there's no way around feeling off or weird. Uh, it's kind of like, like you miss a meal when you're, when you're that lean and like, you'll be even keel. Like if you're eating 20, like when I'm eating 2,800 calories and I'm whatever I was four or 5% body fat, like, you know, walnut butt, um, I'm feeling fine. But then if for some example, like we get stuck in traffic for, for an hour and then, you know, I get stuck in a conversation and my workout takes too long. And like, let's say I go five hours without eating. All of a sudden I'm right back to that dark place and you're like, Oh shit. Like I'm walking a, a tightrope. Like, you know, if, if my liver glycogen gets low, my blood glucose drops, all of a sudden every signal my body throws at me again just as hard as it was before. Like, hey, you're gonna die if you don't if you don't get food because there's no body fat. Like you you probably have barely more fat storage than you have glycogen storage. Like you're you're at risk of of you know, there there not being a gas station for a while and you running out and dying, you know, that kind of perspective on the body. So um yeah, like you miss a meal in the off-season, you don't even notice it sometimes. You know, you're like this relieved that you don't feel bloated. So it's just a very different experience. So anyway, to answer your question, it's been very long-winded and tangential, um, maximizing the appropriate relationship with the monitoring, tracking, and eating, and all of that, and training regulation uh, can mitigate a huge amount of the, the suck uh, of, of competitive bodybuilding. Um, and then depending on how lean you have to get, how lean you can get, um, which is not just related to your deficit and all that stuff. Of course, operationally, it is from like a physics standpoint and a biology standpoint, but your experience and your ability to manage food and your your established behaviors, I think that has an independent effect as well. So, I mean, getting to that Brian Whitaker status level of leanness, it only happens in people who are super, super experienced or who just have incredible fat loss genetics and typically the combination of the two uh, because of all the things you have to manage. And then how that affects you is partially affected by, by the way you do it. Um, but a huge part of it is also just getting that lean. It's not where your body wants to be. So anyway, uh, it made me realize which effects are modifiable and which effects are non-modifiable and to what degree. I think I think it's the perspective I had, but I definitely saw how it went poorly in the past and why it was going well now, and how the the differences was very much my uh, perspective and framing of the sport and the things I
0: learned about better approaches. Um, one thing that a lot of um, people focus on is obviously you know people focus on the off season bodybuilding phase where you're putting on muscle and you're 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 trying to get as big as you possibly can. There's people that focus on the, um, uh, the the cutting phase and after moving up into a competition, the prep, and all of the work that goes into that. Um, but I feel that there's kind of a huge gap in our knowledge and understanding and our ability to manage what happens after the show. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, based on everything that you've, like, researched, Going, you know, in in not just in this paper, but in your career as as a bodybuilder and as a coach, and everything that you've experienced. Um, what do you feel are some of the things that people really, really need to focus on after a show to maintain, let's say, both the physical and the psychological health of of competitors? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question, and is definitely one
1: of the most difficult periods. Um, because you get into this place of push and pull, um, so we know from research on starvation and semi starvation that the, the natural response to this level of uh, restriction is full blown eating until you you either throw up or can't eat more physically and repeating that process until you 've regained the lost fat mass um, and, and gotten rid of the acute energy deficit, and then the the, the symptoms persist until you've regained the lost lean body mass, which happens slower, Um, and that can take much longer, especially if you're not doing resistance training because you're losing both muscle and a lot of other stuff. Uh, And then there's even a lag time after that, and it not always but often results in what's called body fat overshooting. So the point at which you started this period where you got really lean Uh, It's not uncommon within weeks or months to actually have a higher body fat level than where you started. Um, That's the natural response to getting this super, super lean. Um, And that's someone starting at a, quote-unquote, normal level of body fat, then getting to essential levels of body fat, and if you just leave them to their own devices. Um, You may or may not have heard of uh, refeeding syndrome, which is actually the observation that sometimes – it's only been observed in the modern world, people who do this can actually die. They get uh, such an influx of food and calories that they get electrolyte imbalances and it affects their heart health, and and they essentially can't deal with with the massive onboarding and changing electrolytes, fluid compartments, food. So essentially um, this is a real thing that has been documented and can happen in people who have uh, been starved uh, typically, it had been observed in modern times. It was something that I think was first observed in POW camps in World War II after getting people back and just a lot of them, Hey, eat, yeah, great. And then, oh shit, what happened there? Um, and uh, you, you, I think evolution from an evolutionarily, evolutionarily from a evolutionary bio, biological perspective, you're like, well, that's that's a terrible adaptation to have. But if you think about it, there's never a, a like a natural exposure in our history towards being that starved and then having unlimited, abundant food, you know, which is essentially what happened in these situations. You know, a truck pulls up, American GIs hop out, POWs come on board, and it's here's a buffet. Keep eating and, oh, you want more? Yeah, the chef, make him some more potatoes or whatever. Um, the reality is, is you go from this starved state towards, uh, you know, members of your clan dying off, uh, you're finding a few berries, finding a starved elk that you eat. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. then winter ending, and then food becoming progressively more available. Uh, so it's kind of this, this tapered response. Um, and so that, that that kind of makes sense as to why we, we would retain this adaptation where our body wouldn't be ready for a huge exposure to food after uh, being being so restricted. Uh, and no, if anyone's worried, I've never heard of any bodybuilder dying of, of eating post-comp, so you're probably safe. Um, the point being, though, is that it is a natural response And the problem is is that we live in a very unnatural environment. So on one end of the spectrum of what we don't want to happen post-comp is for you to be surrounded with all of the things that exist in our obesogenic environment while also having every single signal in your body directed towards eating as much as possible of the most highly palatable foods there are and the most calorie-dense and your body being primed for fat storage. Um, There's nothing wrong with gaining body fat post-comp. You need to. but it's probably not conducive to your mental or physical health, and we actually have some data on this, to gain it so rapidly uh, that you actually overshoot your body fat within weeks of where you start it. Um, and there's actually a paper that Trexler, Eric Trexler was involved with uh, where there was a correlation between the slow return of testosterone levels uh, with uh, the higher rates of body fat gain. Not to say you shouldn't gain body fat post-comp, but when it happens so, 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 so rapidly, it actually seems to cause some problems. So on one end of the spectrum, you don't want your post-competition plan just to be a, simply a list of food and restaurants that you didn't have. You don't want to be the person who, oh, well, how are you preparing for the transition to the off-season? Oh, I've been hoarding treats that I'm going to have post-comp. <laughs> like, um, I've, I've got a lot of Kit Kats. That's my that's my plan. And I've, I've seen that all the time. You know, And you get to a point. Uh, where you can really lose your appreciation for the process and what you're doing and, like, you're backstage pumping up for the overall, ready to frickin' win, uh, and you're considering not following your carb-up plan and having the, the, something out of, like, the, the box of treats that are backstage. And you're like, really? You came this far, you're minutes away from potentially winning, and you're willing to throw your plan away so you can taste chocolate, you know? Or people who are, you know, backstage pumping up, and they're talking about the restaurant they're going to go to in an hour and a half Versus thinking about, man, this is the culmination of eight months of work and ten years of training, and I, I, I could be winning my first overall or winning my division. So the, the mindset you get into is, is bent towards overconsumption. So you don't want to be on that end of it because you can be the person like me in 07 who within two months, uh, we're talking, competed in May and in July. So I was on stage at 178 pounds, and I was 226 pounds in July. And that was, like, a, a not a bloated weigh-in. Um, so literally almost 50 pounds up or, um, you know, 22 kilos of weight gain within two months of actual weight gain. Um, and, uh, and just going, oh, my God, what happened, you know, when I had only lost 15 kilos to get into shape or 15 or 16. So uh, you don't want to be on that end of the spectrum. And I had no plan. I had no plan except for um, I'm just going to go back to eating whatever I want. And I came from a like, skinny kid background who had to do everything he could to put on muscle mass and really had no concept of being overweight or dietary restraint. Like, I remember being in high school, and I'd be hungry, and I'd go into the fridge, and uh, a reasonable snack would be a block of cheese. Like, why not? Like, it, didn't, it didn't matter to me. I didn't think anything about it. Um, I was also the type of kid who, I guess kid, adult, who when I was like 19, as in the Air Force. I'd get so obsessed playing Halo over land, uh, I'm showing my age here. Uh, that we, we we might go the whole day and forget to eat dinner, then I get tired, go to sleep, and the next day, like, what do you want for lunch? I, I want a whole large pizza. I'm, I'm really hungry. Why am I so hungry? I don't know. Oh, yeah, I forgot dinner last night. So it's like it's never entered my mind. Um, so I didn't really have a well-established bodybuilding eating behaviors going into my 07 prep, except for the seafood diet. That's S-E-E, seafood. You eat it, try to get huge, lift weights. So the only kind of structured eating behavior around what looked like bodybuilding i had learned through prep and i knew that was hard that was crazy i don't need to do that anymore so i'm just going to go back to eating everything and being normal and boom next thing i knew i objectively overfat for the first time in my life so i think then the other end of the spectrum it's like okay so we do want to plan we don't want rapid weight regain we don't want to actually have fat overshooting to where you're heavier than when you started a diet assuming you started at a a reasonable place in the off-season, you know, an athletically reasonable body comp for the sport of bodybuilding, you know. Um, so something that most people would be happy to take their, their shirt off at the beach with, you know. Um, so uh, the other, other far end of the spectrum is we don't want to be so obsessed with staying as lean as possible and kind of catering to some of the folks with body image issues who fall in love with the physique they have during prep and who think they should look like that or want to look like that twenty four seven kind of was characterized by the most extreme straw man worst version of the reverse diet, where the goal is to stay as lean as possible but to eat as much as as much as you can, um, and that that's really just kind of catering to where you're at at the end of prep. Like I love the way I look, and I've been trying to get this this look this whole time, but I'm really really starved. I just want to eat everything and look like this. Um, that that's not bodybuilding. Like you're not actually you're in a terrible state for muscle gain at the end of the show, and the only thing you're primed for is fat gain. And basically, if you get your macros up and don't gain any body fat uh, and really, really walk your, your calories up slowly and maintain condition, uh, you're not gaining muscle mass or restoring your, your hormones or gaining sanity. The only thing you're gaining is, like, food. You know, you're you've gained Pop-Tarts. You've gained most likely like more apples and and, and oats and stuff like that. So don't pretend you're being a bodybuilder at that point. You're just going, you know what? I'm going to keep this eating disorder. So, yeah, the extreme reverse diet uh, is also contrary to biology. You're not trying – there's no benefit to keeping yourself in that state. Like all the things I talked about, about being incredibly lean, having an independent effect, you want to get back to a point where you are uh, fully functioning and you're ready to gain muscle. Uh, you, where you're not stored for, you're primed for fat storage, where you're not obsessed with food. Um, uh, a hilarious thing I like to say, and I'm highly attracted to my wife. I love her, and we have a, a great relationship in all facets, to put it that way. But there's a certain point in my prep where if she walked in naked right in front of me with a pizza in her hand, I'd look up and I'd say, Honey, what are the topics? You know? Instead of, like, hey, get that pizza out of the way, It's it's, it's party time, you know. And um, if that is still where you're at, that's, that's, you're, you're not recovered. So the, the emphasis should be recovery um, but not uh, fat overshooting. So it's kind of this middle ground of what we at 3D Muscle Journey call the recovery diet where we are going to purposely get into a surplus, unlike that, that slow reverse where you walk yourself slowly up to maintenance and then you barely budge energy up and you try to see what's the leanest I can possibly be while eating the most I possibly can uh, which typically just turns into um, bulimia, not necessarily vomiting, but having these days and, you know, you're, you're basically not handcuffed to a show. So the, this extreme motivation to get shredded is, is not there. So you're able to rationalize these binges and you go, oh, no, I don't want to screw up my reverse diet, so I've got to bring my calories back down. Uh, and it, it's, it can be way worse than the actual contest phase itself. Um, and you end up prompting the next binge by then restricting in response to it to, quote, unquote, stick to your reverse diet. Uh, and it's a really, really bad place to be. So instead, uh, the goal is to get into an assertive surplus, uh, where if you had, um, let's say, if you're, if you're eating 3,300 calories in the normal off-season in a, in, a, in a gaining or massing phase, you might be closer to 3,800, 3,900 calories. So on top of the small surplus, you've got a full other 500, 600 calories. So if we're trying to gain body fat. We're trying to regain lost lean body mass. Uh, but we're doing it in a fashion that you might be gaining, you know, a pound a week and with, with a good chunk of that being body fat after the initial glycogen storage recovery of lean body mass, et cetera. But that's a good thing uh, because that should put you back at your, you know, start of your, your, your prep level body comp if that was a good place to be within a couple months. You know, so our goal is typically within one to two months, for you to be about 5 to 10% over stage weight, depending on individual differences, where you started, how lean you got, et cetera. That covers the rough ballpark for 90% of competitors, but not everyone. It really depends on how lean you got um, and your experience level and your ability to monitor that stuff. And that scares a lot of people, but at the same time is much more manageable and has a much higher success rate because if you have no game plan Uh, that same person who maybe should be eating 3,900 calories is going to be eating 5,500, you know? Um, And on the reverse diet, telling them to eat 2,800 is just going to result in a binge where they eat 5,500, then they try to go down to 2,200, and they eat 5,500 and 2,200. And if you give them something where it's like, hey, you just finished your diet, we walked up into your show, you're in the mid-2000s, I want you to cut out half your cardio and increase your calories by 1,200 per day, it's – like, Coach, are you serious? Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Why don't you know what my diet looks like with another 1,200 calories? Well, of course, that's where you help them. And you keep a lot of the same behaviors the same, and you just increase portion sizes. But, um, man, it is so much more sustainable, reasonable, and and, and possible uh, to follow something when you're given this massive abundance of calories and you feel better so much faster. Having been the person who's done both, the Extreme Reverse Diet uh, and also the, the, the seafood, eat everything, let's get fat, within months diet, and now doing the recovery diet myself uh, this year. Um, the one thing I remember in 2009 where I got close to this lean and then just really, really just beat myself into the dirt through the process of prep, um, lethargy hung around for a way longer time. Uh, and then in 2011 when I did the reverse diet, my food focus hung around worse for a very long period of time. Um, and now I would say I am basically. Let's see, I'm a three and a half weeks post show, and I feel where I think I would have been in the past, like in 2011, maybe almost three months post show. So I am. I still have these days where I really just want to go eat donuts, you know. Um, And sometimes I do eat donuts, but I'm able to have a donut or two donuts, and then just have a smaller dinner. And I basically, right now, I'm just, I, initially, I just ate a lot. So in the first week, I put on a fair amount of, of weight. And, and the night after the show, I partied. And, like, my last show, we were, we were good. You know, we had, um, I ate like I was on vacation, but I didn't binge. So there's no post-comp binge. It was just, like, uh, I had my peak week, and I had an appetizer a uh, meal, finished my wife's meal, and had dessert, and went to bed. And then the next day, on Sunday, I ate like I was on vacation. You know, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner out, and I went to bed. So big surplus, uh, and then kept the substantial surplus, and we hit up a bunch of different restaurants. But I wasn't eating outside of my meal times, and I wasn't, like, ordering second dinners. I wasn't stopping on the way home to get ice cream or anything like that like I had in previous years. So I ate like a normal person would if they were, you know, had bad food habits, basically. Um, and then started slowing it down. And then essentially I've had the, the goal – in week two and week three of eating between 3,000 to 4,000 calories and not being restrained. So if I eat closer to 3,000 calories and I felt really restrained, I go out and have whatever I want. You know, I go down and and get some cookies or something like that, Uh, but getting reasonable amounts of treats. And now uh, as I move into uh, coming into my almost fourth week post-show, now I'm essentially just – it takes – I don't feel as – as driven to have those treats, and I don't feel as restrained, but I'm still not letting myself feel restrained. So now I feel restrained less often, and in response to feeling restrained, my diet gets to like thirty-four, thirty-five hundred 3,500 calories versus, say, closer to that 4,000 mark. And my body weight is between 87 to 89, depending on what I did the day prior and how much sodium, food bulk, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and that's basically... Uh, right around where I started. I think I started my prep in eighty-eight, eighty-nine. So I'm, I'll be basically at the start of my prep, and I started pretty lean. I think I started did a good job um, with where I started my prep in terms of kind of that peak, optimal place of uh, being normal and not dieted, but also being in a, a reasonably low off-season body comp. Um, so I've still got like bicep veins and separation everywhere, but I've definitely gained a fair amount of body fat, and that's uh, going to be Right around one month post show, so I'm essentially 10% over stage weight one month post show. So I've done like kind of the most aggressive version of the recovery diet, and I felt it's felt a lot better. So I'm still a little food focused, but I think that's normal. And uh, and that's a tough sell for competitors. It is difficult, and um, it depends on which side of the kind of spectrum they had and what behaviors they had going in. But I, I would agree with you that the The importance of focusing on the transition to uh, normalcy again is really, really critical. It's one of the hardest things, and if someone doesn't have good behaviors going into prep, it's going to be very, very difficult, and that's another reason. It's another thing that I would caution someone before they ever decided to compete was to make sure that you can do this off-season thing perfect before you decide to do the the prep thing Uh, because returning to the off-season is going to be even harder if you don't already have those established behaviors. Uh, one thing that I really rely on in an article I'd recommend anyone read, that's a blog post I made uh, on 3DMuscleJourney.com. It's our, our website. It's called The Default Diet. And it's basically that the skeleton of your diet, when you eat, uh, what you include in it, the components to it, like a, a lean protein, a fruit, a veg, and optional carbon fat sources, and should should look the same whether you're two weeks out or whether you're 200 weeks out. You know, um, Whether you're taking the the eight-year off-season I did uh, to do my Ph.D. and my master's, or whether you are literally planning your peak week, um, because uh, that, that, that should basically be like your, your skeleton of your diet that you then build on, because that's something you can fall back on. You can rely on your habits and your behaviors um, once, you know, you have these vastly different hunger signals. And it's, if you stay within the confines of that skeleton, there's only so much you can beef on top of it. You know, so for example, if, if my lunch is typically a couple pieces of fruit, a couple carrots, big carrots, uh, and some fruit, and and then, uh, you know, a low calorie soup with, with some canned tuna mixed into it, uh, and some, some low fat popcorn, I can change that into like a higher calorie soup, uh, higher calorie vegetables, uh, a salad with dressing on it instead of the carrots. And then, uh, you know, have a dessert afterwards or something. But I change the composition of it to be higher calories, but the behavior retains the same. That's really different than going out and having, like, three ice cream sundaes and not having lunch at all, you know. Um, and that, that would just feel so foreign to me that it's not even, like, when I get those really, really strong food urges food and desires, there's, there's, there's certain confines it fits into that limits how bad it can be, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and th- those can be really kind of like an anchor in a storm as your body it feels very different and your mind is very focused on
0: different things post show um, I think you, you've really given let a, a solid framework for what people should be aiming for um, with uh, with their kind of that their post show uh, food let's say mentality um, I, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because you 've been so generous with it already um but just before we kind of we end one thing i would like to ask is um obviously the, the kind of the environment the the let's say the the fitness industry that we're we're in at the moment has a little bit of a role to play in everything that kind of has happened in, in let's say the some of the negative effects that you you probably the paper um if you could see some changes happening within the um the, the fitness industry right now, and you don't need to go into too many details about them. What would be some of the key changes that you would like to see happening um, to kind of lead to, uh, let's say, a, a healthier and more sustainable bodybuilding uh, environment?
1: Absolutely. So I think number one is uh, I just want this information to be commonly known. So informed consent. I would love to have everyone uh, be aware of what they're getting into and then be able to realize they don't need to necessarily compete, and if they do compete, uh, maybe how they should do it in certain aspects. Uh, Second is I want coaches to recognize the limits of their knowledge and scope of practice, so understanding that they are not registered dietitians unless they are, and that they are not mental health specialists unless they are, and that they should not be coaching people unless they have those people as part of their referral network, and that they have an awareness of all these same things so they know when to bring in an expert, at least tap an expert on the shoulder and go, hey, do I need to be bringing you in at this point? I'm not sure if this behavior is is, is a problem or not, and I don't want to mess them up. Um, So uh, basically, inform professionals and inform potential athletes. And then finally, on the uh, kind of influencer side or the social media game, I think it's really, really important that we not put bodybuilders or the the lean physique on a pedestal. Um, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, celebrating lean physiques in the context of bodybuilding because that's like celebrating, like Jordan dunking from the free throw line. Like that's a basketball player showing incredible basketball skills and and athletic talent. So, for example, I, I am an influencer, if you will, Uh, as much as I want to throw up now that I said that. Um, You know, I'm a science communicator. I'm someone who promotes different information in in fitness, et cetera. Um, So when I post a picture of me in shredded condition, it is to talk about the physiology of being in shredded condition. It is to show me on stage so that you can see here's me competing. You know, and I have something to say about bodybuilding. Um, Or it is to talk about a bodybuilding program, bodybuilding nutrition, et cetera, but what you will never see is me doing lifestyle marketing using my lean physique, where essentially uh, you see this all the time, connecting, being happy or being successful um, in whatever iteration you're trying to sell with a lean physique, because then it basically is giving the message, whether you realize it or not, that you are a better person or more, you have achieved more or you're superior or you're something like that um, by, by being leaner. And there is, Absolutely nothing better about being 15% body fat as a male versus 20% from an objective standpoint. Like, you're probably not going to have better blood work. You're probably not going to be more athletic. Uh, you might be able to, like jump higher just because lean lean-to-fat mass ratio. There are some limited athletic pursuits, but athletes aren't better people. They're just more athletic. So it's – there is – so long as you're and, – and, and also, it's not someone's moral imperative to be healthy either. Someone isn't healthy, they're not healthy, right? So, I think uh, we need to. We have this almost implicit bias in the fitness community, especially in kind of the aesthetic focused bodybuilding community, that the leaner you are, the better you are. And that's just a better outcome. Like, what's my goal? So, I have to get better body composition. Well, what's a better body composition? Well, of course, I mean being leaner. Why? Well, it looks better. To who? Like, you know what I'm saying? So, if, there, if, you, if you follow that path down, you basically realize that what we think and say in the nutrition community and in the fitness community is leaner is better. And I think we need to just be aware that leaner is leaner and that leaner can come at a cost if we're asking people to modify their nutrition behaviors, uh, and, and it's based on this relationship with their body where they don't feel like they are a good person or have as much value when they could be better until they reach X body composition, you know. Uh, and I've seen so many people try to. I want to maintain eight percent, and I'm like, oh god, what a waste of time! Like this is this is not going to go well for you. It never does. Um, or uh, and instead, just just realizing like there's actually very little correlation uh, with, with outside of the obesity BMI index. Like if you're in the overweight category, there's very little convincing data that shows being overweight is actually associated with negative health outcomes especially if you control for variables like being physically active, exercising, and having a good relationship with food and being mentally healthy. Like if you're BMI and you're not that muscular. I'm not saying like you have a high BMI just because you're muscular and BMI is shitty. But let's say your BMI is 28. Uh, You're a male and you're in the low 20s for body fat percentage, but you have 10,000 steps per day. Um, You regularly work out and you eat lots of fruits and vegetables. And that's just kind of your body. You're probably going to have great blood work. You're probably going to live a really long, long time, and you're an exemplary example of someone following all the fitness ideals. You know, you're teaching your kids good, good healthy behaviors. What would be better about you getting down to 15% body fat? I don't know. Like, that, that, that's your own subjective opinion. However, social media would tell you, here's how you be a good person is you need to lose 10 pounds. And there's, there's, there's no objective reason for that. Um, your aesthetic preferences are your aesthetic preferences, but people just need to know it comes at a cost. So I would prefer it, of course we live in a free society, if social media influencers would only promote leanness in the context with where that actually is objectively something positive. So you'll never see me in contest condition like leaning against a Ferrari or with some attractive person next to me like, hey, this is what it gets. You know. If you get shredded, you get hot chicks like even if it did, like you wouldn't even be interested in them. Like you know, you'd be interested in pizza again. So it's that's just it's it's a conflation of of, of morality with with uh, body composition, and I think uh, it's largely harmful because we know a big part of eating disorders and and uh, body image issues are self worth being dependent on body comp. So anyway, that that's kind of my long rant. So to recap, three things: don't put leanness on a pedestal. Um, have better-informed professionals who know how to what their scope of practice is, and have have true professionals in the area of mental health on their side, and then finally informed consent for everyone who decides to get involved with bodybuilding.
0: Eric, I think those That's are absolutely uh, amazing um, closing points, and kind of something that we should all be considering a lot, uh, whether we're whether we're professionals in the industry or you know people generally, uh, we're competitors as well, and just people on social media considering, you know, this is a, this is an Instagram life, you know, we're all using it. Um, I could literally, you know, uh, go on and ask you a million more questions, but, um, I, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all the time you've given us already. Um, how can people, uh, follow you and find out more about your work and read more of your content?
1: So I, I try to do a pretty good job of, of posting content like, to, to, to the depth and degree that Instagram allows me to on Instagram. So definitely follow me at Helms3DMJ. And then I would say the one-stop shop uh, for all of this would be uh, 3DMuscleJourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then MuscleJourney.com. That's our resource for uh, people who, identify, who, who, I, who self-identify as bodybuilders. And then lastly, uh, the one thing that's not if, if a pathway through 3DMuscleJourney.com, because you can find my books and a research review there, would be Iron Culture. Uh, which is Omar and my podcast where we talk about uh, this and the larger culture of being a lifter. So Helms3DMJ, 3 com, Iron Culture, you can find pretty much everything I do between those three.
0: That's absolutely amazing. Um, Eric, once again, I want to say thank you very, very much. Everybody, uh, if you're not already following uh, Eric, do that. Um, like uh, I've already said, you know, you had a, a profound uh, influence on kind of my career path moving into Nutrition and um, everything I do. So I want to say thank you for that. And um, yeah, thank you. Have a great night. And hopefully, we'll uh, get to have another conversation like this again sometime. Look forward to it. Honor and
1: pleasure. And thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at bmorenutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.